0: Welcome everyone to Quality Talks and I'm here again with Marie Cameron and we've just had a conversation about Marie's career in residential aged care, quality and safety. However, Marie has also had her own experience of the acute care system over the past few years and she's very kindly allowed me to ask her a few questions about that because I'm quite fascinated by her insights into quality and safety of acute care, given that she spent so many years talking about promoting, improving the quality of care in residential aged care. So, Marie, to kick off, have we cracked patient-centred care in the acute sector, do you think?
1: That's a really interesting question, Cathy, because as I reflect on that, I think we have these conversations when we're well. When you're actually unwell and you're in hospital, I think patient-centredness is interpreted very differently to how we might define it sitting here today. And I think you're not in a position to know really whether it's patient-centred or not. You're just going to have a response to whether or not you feel like you're getting cared for or not and whether someone is coming near you or not. And feeling compromised... I think you feel like you're getting patient-centered care so long as you feel that someone is caring for you. It's as simple as that in my experience. And how you would judge that, um, other than again, an emotional response to almost, to feel that someone's coming in and out, you, you want someone to know what they're doing. You're not in a position to be able to judge what it is they're doing to you often. And the same for family members uh, who are relying on those who are looking after you.
0: So so patient-centred care then perhaps is something that we're defining in a way that perhaps is not what we should be thinking about. Are we trying to put some sort of objective
1: definition on it when really it's an incredibly subjective thing? When we talk about patient-centredness, the only thing a patient can respond to is their experience. Mm. And when you're feeling sick, it's whether someone's going to answer your bell quickly. Yeah whether someone's coming in to check you before you've had to ring the bell, really. Just someone popping their head in all the time saying, Are you all right or coming in you know, that your drip isn't always beeping before someone attends to it, that people are being proactive in your care rather than being responsive to requests. That would be that's definitely how I would have judged whether the people in the shift that were caring for me were giving me good care and they were doing it proactively mm. and I wasn't having to ask that people were anticipating my needs and just checking in on me with some degree of regularity and I felt cared for when that was happening. See, I think
0: that's a really interesting perspective because when I talk to people about pe- person-centered care when I'm out and about in a hospital, for example, and I'll try and scratch the surface and see what they're really talking about. Often they're talking about bedside handover and engaging consumers in their decision-making about the care.
1: Was that an important part of person-centred care for you? I have been absolutely shocked by my own response to not investing in the decisions about my care in any great way. That when you're unwell, the one thing you hope for most is that the doctor who's looking after you is good, but you never really know whether or not they are, in a sense of their technical or their professional acumen or how they're held in light of their peers you just don't know that as a patient but when you're unwell again I don't want someone to give me 10 options and for me to go away and think about it and do my own homework to decide and do the pros and cons I want someone to be telling me what it is they would do and I have found myself particularly with the medical staff saying when they have given me options and I'll say well If I was your sister or your mother, what would you say to me? Mm. And that's as as close as I've got to with my own decision-making because there is so much in the decisions around medicines and treatments and the relative impact and efficacy over time and beyond the immediate response that I don't want to make. In fact, I don't have the energy to make those decisions when I am unwell, and that has been really surprising to me. I would have thought with my health background knowledge and the work that I've been doing all these years, I would have been the picture patient who wanted every bit of information and wanted everything laid out and for me to be in the driver's seat around this. But actually what I found is I'm the passenger in many ways. Yeah. I'm not. I'm central to it. Someone's taking me on the ride. But I haven't had the energy and my family haven't had the same knowledge that I've had either. So we talk as health people, health practitioners, health practitioners in a way that is quite a foreign language to anyone else. And I know that it, it, it frustrates my husband that we'll be talking to my doctors and I'm having the conversation because I understand the language and we get out and he'll say, what was all that about? And even though he's included in the conversations, there is a language that we have that we don't even appreciate until we have some serious health issues and and you're interpreting it differently with family members about what's going on. So, sh- so should we
0: redefine patient-centered? Because we started out trying to find a way to engage with patients more in our clumsy, subjective sort of way, trying to almost impose what we think onto the patient. So we think, oh, yes, this is going to be a great idea to give them lots of decision-making. And here's you, someone who's high health literacy, worked in healthcare all their lives, saying, well, that isn't really necessarily that helpful or that patient-centred. Is it time to redefine it? Well, I think think it
1: is, but it's also probably situational because someone who's actually engaging with a health system and they're actually relatively pretty well and high energy levels and capable of doing that, I think we confuse that with the capacity of a patient at any one time to be able to do it. So in some ways, I'd say my level of all of that is fluctuating, although it has been very consistent that there are so many treatment options, usually no matter what you've got, that you want it narrowed down so that um, you get the choice if you're going to make it as easy. Um, I think having long conversations and leaving it up to the patient is not the way to go, because the patient is often the last person to be able to interpret it, myself included. Mm. Um, and as I said, I've been shot myself, because it's really challenged my own thinking, my experience. So I do think we need to redefine it. And I think we, we put, particularly the medical profession, we give them a lot of training, we give them a lot of experience. And now we're saying we want the patient to choose. And I just don't think you can do that. I do find myself getting onto the Google sometimes after I've made the decision or I've jointly made the decision, but I tend to do that to just check that I was given the right option, which is interesting. I've already accepted it. So I think having faith, I'm the classic patient who has faith and wants to have faith in the doctor Mm. because it's too confusing. And when you do start to actually research yourself, unless you are a doctor and probably even in the same specialty, you just don't understand this stuff. Mm. So you want them. And what I've really appreciated most with the health system interface is having had a long-standing relationship with a general practitioner because you're then relying on them to give you a referral to someone who is good. You're hoping that, you know, you've got a general practitioner who's well-connected to know what's going on so that the referrals they make are going to send you in the right direction to start with because even when I talk to friends and other specialties, they only know about people in their own specialty. It's a very close shop and I think we know that for everywhere in health. So you don't really know and we don't put information out. To help people choose. There isn't clinical data out there against all the doctors to tell us who's getting the best results. And they may not necessarily work anyway because they can then cherry pick to make their results look better. But, um, I do think we have to redefine it and I do think it's situational and I, and we can't have one approach. And I do think we're asking too much of patients to be in the driver's seat with not enough information. And even if they're given the information to have Enough information to be truly informed would require a medical degree. So, yes,
0: yes. It's the concept of fully informed consent that I've always struggled with. How could anything really be fully informed with the amount of information that that would require? It's always been a, a bit of a thing for me when people talk about it almost glibly, you know. Apart from the things you've already mentioned, what else is really important to you as a patient? would be something that we really should consider that perhaps we're not currently when we talk about patient-centered care? Is, is there something that, that you've come across or experienced that you think, oh, gee, I don't think actually this this fits into a classic definition of patient-centered and
1: yet it's really important? When you're in hospital during the day, it's a busy time even as a patient because when your tests are happening and people are visiting and, you know, just lots lots of things happening. So the time for talking Often tended to be with the night nurse, yeah. and I often recognised that they were, you know, quite young. I mean, you know, I'm I, I did my nursing a long time ago now, and and one of the things that I most reflected on is probably now being in the situation I am with my own healthcare. All the things I said to those patients years ago, which were so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and I would have said, and I would have said. So I find myself in a bit of a mentoring role, actually, with the night nurses because they, you know, we we talk about it, and and um and I and I find that's the time. So you don't have that time during the day, and you shouldn't probably expect it either, because that's the time when things happening. Mm. But I think we don't always appreciate the role of the night stuff because it is slower for the patient because the doctors all gone home to bed in the most part. You know, all the procedural stuff has shut down. So that's the time of the day where patients actually get time to do some talking. Mm. That's not actually how we start either. And that's been quite illuminating because you often have a view about night shift and what people do or don't do on night shift. That's just a, a common thing. But the conversations, and it's not actually even about where you're at. It's just about relating to someone because the re- what I've found is the relationships are almost take more prominence than anything else, have a good relationship with a doctor, good relationship with the staff, you know, and I've said that sense of feeling cared for. Yes. Which is also about the attitude, because you know if you've got a staff member who's looking after you and you think, I don't, I'd really rather she wasn't on. We don't articulate that very well, and there's no real system around that for patients either. But no, you get who you get. You get who you get. You get who you get. So I think... I think that's interesting. I think what's most um, interesting for me, you know, I have a prognosis like lots of people that, you know, it means I'm, my life may not be as long as other people. But with that, I have I did have an adverse event. Um, I was given the drug through the wrong route. Um, it was supposed to be subcut and it was given intravenously and I had a terrible side effect and I really thought I was in trouble with that one. And so did my family and, I learned in hindsight that the particular drug that was given to me actually sometimes does have a fatal effect on people. And I I wasn't really feeling uh, very well, but it wasn't until the next day I was talking to my consultant who had come to see me and I talked to him about the adverse event that had happened and it wasn't in the records, which was interesting. They then started a whole whole investigation. But more importantly, no one had ever talked to me about resus status. And it's one thing to think that, you know, you might have a long-standing chronic illness um, and people make judgments about that but I realized very quickly when I was having the adverse drug event that I actually didn't want to die from a drug event no and I was wondering if I had died whether that would have been signed away because of my underlying health issues and the whole notion about depending on what's going on for a person the discussion about recess just doesn't happen which I found really interesting That is pretty Because people can live for a very long time with something that's considered to have a a terminal prognosis at some point in the distant future. So you think that possibly colours people's caregivers' perspective? Caregivers, and I think just our processes, we talk about, not for recess all the time in healthcare, but we actually do that in the context of the particular areas I've found because no one's had a conversation with me and I've had a few admissions Mm, now. So I'm just assuming that, that decision's been made and you know maybe that's what I would choose but very quickly I realised I didn't want to die of an adverse drop event. heavens no and and would someone have resuscitated me yes did you ask anyone no I was so sick at the time yeah. you see this that's the whole thing we put the onus back on the patient to raise the issue or well, you've moved past it uh, and you start being grateful again and The illness combined with gratitude, I've
0: always thought, is a cocktail not suited to putting the onus on the patient for too much at all, really. And and a lot of people would say, oh, that sounds terribly patronising. But I think in reality, it's different when you're the one who feels terrible. You're so focused on yourself and wanting to feel better that you can't possibly have the brain space for too much.
1: Well, you haven't. And I think, like, at a physiological level, your body's really doing so much work just trying to fight illness and all the treatments that there is not much space left. And so everything we talk about in a theoretical way that we're trying to translate into, you know, what we do at the bedside, it's just that because we're all all well people talking about that. Yes, precisely. And doing the work. I've often thought that. And you've made some excellent
0: points about feeling cared for, which is proactivity largely, mm. not having to ask, not having to wait. So feeling that someone's thinking about you and then taking action. Mm. Relationships, very important. Trust and the people around you understanding
1: that you feel like crap. You're not a well human being. Well, certainly not these days to be in a hospital bed. Hmm, you exactly. know, Our length <laughs> day has got shorter and shorter yeah. and we go home feeling pretty... Um, Unwell as mm, well. Mm. So the time we're there, we're yeah. not at our best. So, 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 where does well-being
0: come into patient-centeredness?
1: Well, I, I, it's, it's something that I've actually thought about a lot quite recently. I've had you know numerous treatments over the years, and some certainly much worse than than others. And I think well-being is a relative term, is what I've learned. Is that you can actually, and at times I have felt quite unwell. For a good part of the time, but within that time of being unwell, I felt better. so you can be unwell, but you felt you feel better today than you did yesterday. So that sense of feeling better than you did yesterday, better in yourself, yeah you in mean, yourself yeah. and even even physically you might feel better sure, sure. Um, and so you know you might have more nausea one day, for example, than the next day. so you already start to equate that with feeling better and so that well-being. I have found for myself to be a very relative thing.
0: But I think that goes to the complexity of all of this, beautifully, because we're human beings, we're not robots. So you can feel all of that at the same time. My real interest there in terms of patient centeredness is, are they the choices
1: that you really should be given? How well you're likely to feel or not. Mm. Absolutely. I, I don't think they're the choices that we are given because ultimately the people who are caring for you their metrics are different as well too. So if you're looking at, you know, chronic illness of any kind, you're looking at survival rates. You're looking at, you know, effectiveness of treatments over a long length of time. So the measures don't always equate with how the patient might feel for the duration. And I'm sitting here talking to you and I'm I'm feeling very well. Arguably, I'm actually not. But actually, I am highly functioning and feel as good as I've ever done but my health issues mean that you know that will fluctuate and so I think those choices but how does someone predict I think I think the difficulty around that is predicting how someone's going to respond to treatments and the relative well-being for an individual because it is so subjective but certainly um, you can have a good sense of well-being even when you're really unwell. But as I say, in my own experience, it's having a fluctuation of of relative getting better or feeling better than you might have done the day before or the hour before. Yes. Which influences a sense of optimism and hope um, as opposed to being on a treatment that might make you feel unwell every day for at the same level and you just get fed up with it. So you almost, you know, exhaust yourself with just feeling unwell, even though others around you might see you as being relatively Functioning, and that's what most people do because you present something to the outside world, which might be quite different behind your door in your own home. Yeah, it's been really interesting mm. experiencing this, and over a period of time now. And I'm even more interested that I even think about these things, and mm. I think it, it's it, which tells you more about the fact that I'm still interested in safety and quality, actually, mm. and it and it really um, has thrown up a lot of things for me to question how we. Think about it at a system level in the, in the work we do to try and make it better for patients So what, all the time, every time. Yes,
0: well, precisely. So what is it, when you think about it, that a group of staff in a hospital could do that would significantly improve your experience? If you had to go back to hospital and they had changed something,
1: what would that thing be? To make a real difference, too. You know, we just sort of talked about the proactivity and the care and the relationships. I think when we're in the, in the caring side of it, as you know, being the health professionals, we're talking about the patient's objective measures. You know, five signs. You know, how we appear, what we ate, all those things you can sort of talk about objectively. Maybe we could start having conversations about. What level of intimacy and conversation will we be able to achieve with patients today? Because I think that might actually tell us a bit more about how we're relating to people. And that goes for all part, all people working in the health profession, actually, whether it's the allied health, the nurses, the doctors. Yeah. If there was some reflection around not just the actual objective care measures and how we might measure them, but about how we are relating to people on a day-to-day basis, would probably all our practice. Yes. The, and your comments about...
0: Evening and night staff are so, uh, just so full of potential for for really exploring, aren't they? Because those people may not think of themselves in that way. Some probably do. More experienced Mm. people who work regular evening night shifts probably Mm. totally get that. But wouldn't it be great if that became such an important role and their role became more important Mm. because
1: of it? Because that's the thing too, you know, when you are unwell, you don't, you're not always sleeping. We, we Well, I found myself, I do sleep a lot. But it, the night's the quiet time. Mm. And if you are there on your own, and often now we're in single rooms, you know, those nights can be quite long. But it, it, particularly if you've got drips and things going on, you do keep getting woke up. They're coming in. So it's a two-way thing. It's also about, you know, patients wanting to have that sort of conversation. But there is something, I think, in all of us as humans that wanting to relate as people, not just as patients and staff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I think it is a real opportunity. And I think patients eating this would sort of see up a lot, I think, if we started to talk about how we are relating um, to people and we had some metrics around that. Mm. I don't know how we would do it because mm. the experience after the whole hospital event won't capture that.
0: No, we rely on that a lot, don't we? But it can't possibly capture no, that. When, you got, when you've left... Your, your whole
1: mindset changes the minute you walk out the door. You're also starting to feel better by the mm, time you walk out the door. Of course, of yeah. course. You know, the event's over or, you know, you're on to the next part of it. I mean, there are, you know, there's a role now of the patient advocate. So I could they're the ones that go around, but are they, they're probably coming at it from a point of, you know, if you've got any concerns. Yes. Not a point of relating and, you know, we're... A, far more secular society now, I suppose what I'm talking about was someone could say was the role of a pa- pastoral care worker. Well, I don't think that's, that's not what I'm saying. But for people of faith, that's might be what's getting fulfilled. Having said that, the pastoral care is going in with the job to do too. That's right. I'm just talking about, you know, human interaction and relation, and relating and carving out the time for that in a day in a hospital when you are the patient. And seeing that as integral to the rest of the care. To the clinical Ab- care. Absolutely, because it's where I started, I, you know, my, my sense of uh, experience is wanting to be cared for because I cannot care for myself. I, yes. If I could, I would be home.
0: Precisely, you wouldn't be there. No That's right. really
1: So what would you say to the board and executive
0: of a hospital yeah, when they're thinking about their plan for the next 12 months about the quality of care they want to provide and they're looking at their patient-centred care policy and they're having those conversations,
1: what would you ask them to pay attention to or to do? Well, I know what I'd tell them not to do. I don't think going and spending a night in a hospital bed when you're well gives you any experience of actually a night in the hospital. is isn't quite the same. It's is not it? quite the same. And I know that that's quite a common thing that boards do, is they go and put themselves in the shoes of patients. But actually, you're not a patient. You're quite well. And... Uh, you might rage the comfort of the bed and the noise of the environment, but you're actually well going to sleep in someone's bed in the hospital. I don't think that's what you could do. I don't really know Kathy, but I do think it is something about what I'm saying. And I know healthcare now too is actually focused on a bit of a hospitality model as well too, and we've done a lot of work around um, food services, for example, particularly around you know malnutrition and um, nutrition issues for patients. But you know. When you're not well, you actually don't want to eat. And then when you're starting to feel a bit better, I mean, I still go to hospitals where if the food's okay, I'm still surprised, but I still have no expectation that I'm going to get good food, and that's not what I'm going to hospital for. So I think we're sort of focusing on all these sort of things, but as the patient, you know, and maybe that will change over time, but they're not the things that focus my mind um, at all. It is down to feeling cared for. And I guess to say, well, how do you know whether or not the patients in your organisation are feeling cared for as opposed to having care given to? Because there's a difference between giving care and feeling cared for. And it does go to the culture of an organisation. And I think also legitimising time spent in something other than the tasks and the busyness and procedures would all have to be done as well and putting some value around that. That's hard
0: because people will say, oh, but the staff's so busy and there's never enough people to do everything that needs to be done. But I think your word value is very important there. If we value something enough, we can find a way. So perhaps it is emphasising the value of that to the patient that may not come through a patient survey result or um, a bedside handover conversation. Maybe they're the things that we don't really in terms of it being integral to a quality system. I see a lot of quality systems. I see a lot of quality plans. I don't see that being cared for emphasised.
1: No, and I wouldn't have thought to um, think about it if I wasn't having that experience and I haven't thought about it. And and I think the challenge of this would be not rolling it up into experience because it is just a component of the overall experience. Um, and probably more, I think, when you're on because you're vulnerable. Maybe we just need to ask patients different questions and have some more, I don't know, we're doing the surveys around experience, but we need to be a bit more experiential about yes. what we're doing.
0: Yeah. Surveys can only tell you so much, mm. I think. There are pieces of the puzzle, but there's, by all means, not the, not the whole puzzle. And uh, you've introduced us to some pieces of the puzzle today, I think, that perhaps we need to think about a lot more. Having said that, I've not yet been offered a survey. No, haven't you? That's great. <laughs> so they don't really know what you think, even from a survey perspective. <laughs> well, I hope they do because they might get more than they bargained for, Marie. Any further um, thoughts before we wrap up on um, on acute care from, a, from a, someone who's worked or de- de- dedicated themselves to
1: the aged care field for so long? Any further thoughts about acute care? I just don't think there's an end point. I think if we can just maintain a cultural inquiry in all parts of health and care, I think we'll be doing ourselves a great service for the future.
0: Mm. And that's a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much, Marie. Uh, I really appreciate you um, uh, being willing to talk about your experience because your perspective is unique and so valuable. So we appreciate it very much. Thank you,
1: Marie Cameron. Thanks, Cathy.